The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. It's great to be able to preach again and to close out the year. It's been a pretty wild uh, 2018 for me. I moved across the country back in February from Maryland to Arizona. And I, I think I've mentioned that each time I preach, so I promised it'll be the last time. Um, I started this position at Holy Cross in, back in February, and it's been such a joy to be here. And I also proposed to the most amazing girl in the world. And so that was cool. And then she said yes, so that was cool too. Um, and I was able to spend some time this week just reflecting in what God has done in just being faithful to me, faithful to this church, and faithful to my community um, through all of my joys and sorrows. And so it's just been a blessing to reflect on that. Um, I also spent my first Christmas in Arizona, and so that's kind of been interesting. It was 70 degrees a couple days ago, and now it's 30 degrees this morning. Um, it's, and it's been a wonderful time. Like Christmas Eve was awesome, just gathering together as a church to celebrate together. And then, um, yeah, I got to spend time with Pete and Janae and their family, and I got to eat to my heart's content, and then I got to eat continuing to my heart's discontent and my body's just grumbling for treating it in such a negative way, um, just contemplating why I'm putting so much food on my plate and just thinking back to if my gym membership is still active. And it's really that time of the year where we think through what we've done in the year and what we've got, to, what we got coming up in the next year. And it's, you know, a lot of people say to themselves, 2019, this is the year, right? This is the year I can finally get a regular routine at the gym going. And this is the year that I finally master that. We start making these New Year's resolutions um, to right the ship and to better ourselves. But sad to say, statistically, the most, in fact, about 80% of New Year's resolutions fail by the second week of February. So sorry to be a downer on that. But there's not a magical switch that flips on at January, January 1st at 12.01 a.m. that automatically changes our bad habits and behaviors that we have. But year after year after year, people continue to make these resolutions and commitments and on this premise that something in my life is not going the way that I want it to, and I want to fix it up. I want to I change that. I want to do something about it. And most of the times we look to correct and fix things that we feel like we have a control over or we feel like we can do or we have had control over and we want to regain that control that we've lost. And this isn't to discourage anybody if you have any New Year's resolutions to continue on with that, um, to get proper accountability and get good motivation for that and press forward with that. But... but um, what we want to look at oftentimes is not just about getting a better hold of ourselves and fixing ourselves up and overcoming our weaknesses, but I want to encourage us today to look at something much greater that is in control of our lives. And I think you know what that is, and I think that's the reason that we gathered here today. And so I want to invite you to consider that today as we go through our passage together. So uh, why don't we turn to our uh, text for today. And it comes to us from Jude. There's no chapters because it's the whole book. Um, it's 25 verses, a little lengthy, but I'm going to read it for us. Um, I'll try not to read too slow, so just keep up and follow along with me. 
This is the word of God. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such, ungod- such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless, before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of God. Um, Jude, it's by far 
one of the most neglected letters in the New Testament. And I'm sure half of you thought, isn't that a Beatles song? And maybe the other half of you, half of you thought, picture Jude Law. And that's the extent of my Jude references um, that I could think of. And as neglected as it might be, as short as it might be, it's jam-packed with content and action there, as you could probably see. Because Jude is addressing a certain people that he calls them in verse 4. A certain people he describes as ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God, deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And he certainly does not mince his words in the rest of the rest of the book. And fellow millennials that could understand with me might call this throwing shade at certain these certain people. And by the reaction, I'm guessing, yeah. But he's definitely laying down some harsh insults to say. But throwing shade's a very passive-aggressive, very millennial way to go about it. And I'm trying to contrast it by saying this is not that. This is very direct. This is putting people on full blast. Because we know that these letters, the letters in the New Testament, weren't just personal private letters, but these letters were delivered to the congregation to be read aloud so that when an author writes about certain people attached with descriptions of their unfaithfulness, descriptions of them creeping in unnoticed, it becomes very obvious who Jude is pointing out. And so this address, this sort of address happens a number of times in Paul's letters and in Peter's letters. And so this was common in the New Testament, as we can see. And Jude is, in fact, contending for the faith as he writes in verse 3. And so what's more is that throughout the letter, there's a number of examples and analogies that Jude uses to describe just how wicked these certain people are and what the church must do to contend and fight against them. If you read carefully through these examples, um, you know, we're not going to sit and expound on every single one. There are some extra biblical resources that Jude cites, and there are some interesting things that he quotes in there. But when you carefully look through, there's a, a few common strands that Jude describes these certain people as. They reject God's authority, and they pursue their own passions. And you might hear that and say, isn't that really just all of sin? Isn't that all what sin is? And that's probably true to an extent, but that really speaks to something that's very critically at, 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 at a battle with that we are in this time, in Jude's time, as he's writing about it, and in our time as well, because that's, that seems to be true in our lives, that we reject authority. We don't like authority. It's the same reason that Adam and Eve had to find out for themselves what, why that fruit was forbidden and what it would be like to be like God. It's the reason that, as we studied through 1 Samuel before, it's the reason that the Israelites demanded a king, ironically, establishing authority over them. But they said to God, we don't want to do it your way. We want to do it like how everybody else is doing it. We want to do it our way. And so it's the reason, the same reason, the same sort of sinfulness that your children would rather play and play and play instead of listening to you and cleaning up their room. 
my, my, my mom was a piano teacher um, when I was growing up. She's no longer a piano teacher, but my mom was a piano teacher growing up. And she would try and try and try to get me to take piano lessons with her or with one of her coworkers. And so I did it for a couple years. And I really hate it. And being the music person here, like hearing that might be shocking, but I, I really despised it. I hated it. And I quit as soon as she allowed me to. Now I wish I could go back and smack my younger self and be like, suck it up and learn it because it's so useful, valuable. Um, and we want to just have this tendency to fight someone telling us what to do. We don't want anybody telling us what to do or how to do it. We fight against that, and it really deeply hinders us from knowing God and understanding how to live as his people. So I want to consider God's authority today and to see that it is truly good, unlike any human authority, and it doesn't need to be imposed by God. It doesn't need to be earned by God because he's the creator and the ruler over all things. So our text will point to this and show us that God's authority is necessary, God's authority is true, and God's authority is a blessing for his creation. So first is that God's authority is necessary. But I want to take a step back when we consider that to, to look at what do we even think is necessary for us. What do we think is absolutely essential to our lives Having lived through a summer here, I would say that air conditioning is pretty necessary. And given the way that I do work and the way that all of my documents and my information is stored on the cloud, I would say Wi-Fi is a pretty essential part of my life and it's necessary in a sense. And it's not like water and food are necessary, but it is necessary nonetheless. But we consider the things that are necessary in our lives to what end, to what goal, to what purpose are these things absolutely essential to our lives. Food and water are absolutely necessary for survival because that's how our bodies function. That's how we take in nutrients and energy and hydration in order to function. Air conditioning the purpose, the end of that is that we could be comfortable in 100-degree weather, that we could be inside and cool. We, what about cars and gasoline? We, how, how else would we get around to places, you know? And so that is absolutely necessary for the comfort of travel, for the ease of travel, for the efficiency of travel. And yet when it comes to God's authority over our lives, the orders and commands from the one that created all things, from the one that can count the hairs on your head, that knitted us together in our mother's wombs, to this God we say, well, you're not always necessary. Like, maybe just Sundays. Is that cool with you? Maybe when I feel like, maybe when I have the time for it, when I have the time for you, we see it only in those times as necessary. But, we must see God's authority in our lives as a necessary part of our relationship with him. He's the creator who has ordered the world in such a way 
that is only fully understood by him alone. We cannot understand, understand God's ways if we do not acknowledge his authority over our lives and it being a necessary part of our relationship. And it's not that God needs us to acknowledge that. It's not that God needs us to approve of his authority in order to, for him to claim it because he is the true authority. He literally spoke the world into existence. He is this authority, meaning whatever God speaks is. And so it's us who need to recognize God's authority. We need God's authority because God has created and established his law. I mean, he did this in the beginning in the garden. He said, don't eat from that tree. We broke that law. And in his authority, again, coming in with God's authority, he says he makes a covenant to redeem his people. And in his authority, he sends a son to save us, to redeem us, who then in turn in his authority sends us to be a blessing to others. That's the gospel story. And that's the chief end, the chief goal of the Christian life to know this gospel story so that we could glorify God and enjoy him forever, to borrow from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Jude likewise says this very thing, that he's very eager to talk about the gospel story. He's eager to talk about the common salvation that, they, that he shares with the audience. He makes it a point to point that out to them and make it known that that's what I initially wanted to write to you about. I was excited to write an entire letter just about our salvation and how that works out in our lives. I mean, I'm picturing Romans talking about God's salvation for us and how it, it, it works out in our lives. But instead of writing a full letter about our common salvation, he has to pivot and he writes to fight for the faith because certain people that he called out have challenged the faith, have denied and rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. And he cites a few examples of God's authority in verse 5 and on. And he talks about how people were saved in the land of Egypt. And he cites that people were saved from the land of Egypt and those who did not accept, those who did not believe were destroyed. And so he talks about God's authority in this scenario. He has the authority to save and destroy, and he has the authority to execute judgment and punishment when his authority is rejected. And in this way, Judas still writing about this common salvation, but in different terms, that God's necessary authority is graciously made available and comprehensible for us that we would know his ways and his wondrous works. Secondly, God's authority is true. It's true in that it's real. It's not an idea. It's not a concept. It's real. It's not false. And it's also true in that it's genuine. So I'm going to go into both of those things, but it, 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 it takes true, real authority to determine the fate of an entire nation. As we see in the example in verse 5 again, he talks about how God led the people out of Egypt and saved an entire nation. And he put to destruction the people that did not believe in him. To determine that sort of fate, to have that sort of judgment, 
takes absolutely real and true power and authority. And we see that this authority was not earned by God. It's not given to God by anybody, but he himself is authority. It just is. He's not affected whether we approve or not, but it remains true despite our rejection. And in contrast, he, Jude describes these certain people, these, the target of the letters, as the opposite way. In verse 16, he says, These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. He's saying these people have a goal in mind, and this goal is definitely not about God. This, def- it's, this goal is not about anybody else but themselves and self-promotion. They reject God's authority because it wasn't useful to them, and they reject others and they promote themselves. It's, it's about authority, gaining authority for them over the church through manipulation and deception. And it contrasts so dramatically to God's authority. And God, you see that he is true to his character. He is true to who he is. Whereas these certain people are promoting themselves and hiding their true nature in order to further their, their desires and their gains. It's those who boast about themselves and to seek their own desires that are punished. Those who walk in the way of Cain and Balaam and Korah, as the scripture recites, that, that pursue themselves, and God condemns these things. Verse 15, as an example, it finds a way to use the word ungodly, four times in that just one verse to get that point across. And Jude gives us a number of examples to show us what God isn't like, what these people are like, their wickedness. By pointing to these people, he describes them in verse 12 as hidden blemishes or reefs at your love feasts, meaning that they take part in these intimate, deep meals that the church shares together that is meant to signify the presence of Jesus amongst their congregation. And these, these people are a hidden thorn in the church. And it says they're shepherds feeding themselves, which, might be, which is pretty self-explanatory. They're supposed to be shepherding and guarding and keeping the sheep, but they're concerned with themselves and their promotion. And we see examples like waterless clouds, fruitless trees, both pointing to a promise of something without the fulfillment of it. Promise of rain when we see the clouds, but there is no rain and the ground is dry. And you see the fruitless trees, the promise of a harvest, but there is no fruit to be harvested. God tells us through his word and through his works that he is good, he is just He is faithful to keep his promises, and he is powerful to save. God's authority holds to that, holds true to that. And so a rejection of God's authority says, I don't believe who you say you are, God, or what you say you're going to do, and I'm going to take matters into my own hands to better myself. So when we understand, when we start understanding that God's authority is true, that it is real, that it is genuine, we can begin to see our desperate need for a perfect Savior 
who seeks to save and redeem for himself a people. It helps us to truly believe that God works together all things for his good, I mean, for, for his glory and for our good. Because lastly, God's authority is for our good. And God's authority is a blessing. His authority gives us order that we so desperately need because we're desperately seeking a way, a path. And his, his, his authority points to us a structure of how the world is, how he created it, how he ordered things to be. And he shows us the path to salvation that is Jesus Christ. God's authority is a blessing for his people. Jude reminds us in, in so many words that the way of these certain people who have denied Christ and his authority, in fact, are not good. And it seems like he's describing a particular people in the church that use the church for their own purpose but deny Jesus explicitly. And they seem like these terrible people because he spends majority of the book condemning them and describing their wickedness. But the more I think about it, the gap between myself and these, these sinful people may not be so big as it made out to be. They're sinners who are following their own passions and denying Christ. The Apostle Paul reminds us of that, that we have all sinned and fall short of God's glory. And it's our sinfulness that causes us to reject God's authority and to wander away from Him. So the best blessing that God can give to us is order and structure for us to know that this is the way to him, that this is the way to salvation, is to remind us that our sinfulness causes us to wander away. And so it holds us and, and gives us a reminder that we get here each week as a church, that God has initiated with us, that God has taken it upon himself to reconcile this broken relationship, that he doesn't leave it as is, but he, he heals this broken relationship between God and mankind. And he establishes his authority so that we might know him and know his ways. And we can see in the latter part of this letter that Jude doesn't spend the whole letter calling out these false teachers and these rebels. But instead, he turns the attention and he ends the letter by turning to the church. And the church, mind you, is not a group of perfect people, as we can see by the... (laughs) exhortations that he gives but certainly there are people who are seeking Christ over their own desires and he exhorts the church to keep yourselves in the love of God how by building yourselves up in the faith and praying in the Holy Spirit he exhorts the church to wait on the mercy of Christ that leads to eternal life he exhorts the church to show mercy to others with fear And what Jude is doing here is showing us that these, the past things that he wrote about in the whole book, those are the ways, what not to do, what not to stray towards, what not to become like. But he's saying these are the ways. These are the true ways that we allow ourselves to submit to Christ rather than to our own desires. Just as he called out these certain people in public as false, as, as not good, as bad, 
he is calling out the church in this latter half of the letter to walk as God's people, rehearsing the way that God has ordered them to live and to reorient their lives around it. Just as it was in the garden and just as it is today, God's authority establishes the way that we should walk in order for us to walk with him as his people. In the garden, he tells them to not eat from that tree. By establishing that authority, by establishing that, he gives them an order, he gives them a way. And today he tells us to keep ourselves in his love. But that's not the end of God's blessing to us in his authority. He doesn't say, okay, now you know what to do. So pull up your bootstraps and go do it. Even though you messed up, just keep doing it. God doesn't say that. We often mistake that God wants us to do that, and we are pumped about living for God. Then we are inevitably disappointed when we fall short and when our sinful hearts overtake us. We're caught in this vicious cycle of trying to pursue obedience but falling into disobedience, and it has us more confused than when we became Christian. But that's not the gospel. That's not the promised blessing. That is not the hope of eternal life in Jesus. But the gospel is that, it's, that Jesus saves us, that though we are sinners, Jesus died for us, taking the place of our punishment, and he rose from the dead to once and for all be triumphant over sin and death itself, that we would no longer have to walk as slaves to sin, but as servants to righteousness. In the gospel here, it's not any different in this letter of, from Jude, because he ends by pointing all of this to say, to, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and who is able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. The blessing of God's authority is that we are to trust in and to point to the finished work of Jesus Christ. He's the only way, the truth, and life. He's the hope of eternal life and the promise of a kingdom eternal where all things have been reconciled. No more tears, no more death, no more pain, no more suffering, mourning, crying. God is able to give us this fulfillment in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. And so why are we fixating on God's authority? We just celebrated Christmas and the coming of Jesus, the Advent, right? And as he, as he came to us, he, he dwelt with us, and as he finished his work on earth, and he ascends to heaven. This is what Jesus proclaims, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and therefore go and make disciples of all nations. And as Jesus came and Jesus went, the angels asked the disciples in Acts 1, why do you stand looking into heaven, watching him ascend? Jesus will return in the same way that, you, that he went. But why do you stand still? Why do you stand there? This is a call to engage in God's mission based on the authority that God has placed over us 
that God has given to us, God has given to his son, Jesus Christ. As a church that seeks to engage in God's mission, it is truly a blessing that God and his authority laid out for us how to live as God's people and how to bless others. And I hope that we're a church that recognizes and understands God's authority as such, that it is necessary for us, that it is true, and that God's authority ultimately is a blessing for us rather than a restriction. Oftentimes we think of authority as something that places limitations on what we can do and on on the freedoms that we can have. But God's authority reveals to us what is good, what is true, what is ordered for us as his creation. The Advent season has come and gone, and Jesus has come, and he has ascended into the heavens. But unlike the season, Jesus is not gone. And Christmas is certainly the beginning, but it's not the end. Jesus is with us, and he alone, as as the passage points out, is able to keep you from stumbling, and he alone is able to present you blameless before God. And so I hope that we can continue to look to Christ, that he would have authority over our lives and to guide us so that we would reorient our lives around the gospel story once again. Let's pray together.